0: ADHD the the stereotype we have is yeah like a little boy who can't stay still um the research that there that we have on on girls is is showing that there's a little bit more of like the inattentive type so the the spacing out and daydreaming so while a girl might be sitting still in classroom because they've been told that, you know that's that's the proper way to be or whatever internally their internal lives are are quite active and so they might be kind of all over the place and in different spaces sort of inside their minds and so then what happens again because my book really focuses on adult women you know these girls are not really labeled with anything um but then when they get older and they're adults and they start having a really difficult time at work or in college they're confused because they, you know, they've never been told anything. They've never been like given a label sometimes through, through hyper-focusing, which actually is part of ADHD. So ADHD is not really a deficit of attention. It's more a challenge of regulating it and like directing it. Right. So, so what a lot of adult women do is they, they hyper-focus. So they will get really good in like one specific area to sort of compensate for the the distractedness and so they might excel actually in certain areas
1: welcome to the unspeakable podcast i'm your host megan daum Terms like neurodiversity and neuroatypical are everywhere these days, and though they're extremely broad, referring to variations in the brain related to any number of cognitive functions, from social functioning to learning differences, they are most often applied to people on the autism spectrum. Because of that, and because autism has historically been associated with boys and men, there hasn't been a lot of thinking about neurodivergence in females. My guest, journalist Janara Nuremberg, is trying to change that. Growing up in the 1990s, she was considered a sensitive and at times anxious child, but she was high-functioning enough to get Ivy League degrees and establish a successful career in journalism, not least of all because of her ability to remain hyper-focused on tasks. But later... When hyperfocus began to undermine some of her daily functioning, she looked deeper into some of those traits and learned that she was actually on the autism spectrum and struggled with ADHD, or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. This led her down a research path that resulted in a book, Divergent Mind, which looks at how diagnoses like autism, high sensitivity, sensory processing disorder, and synesthesia play out in women and why a combination of inadequate medical research and a tendency among women to mask their symptoms has led to rampant misdiagnosis and misunderstanding. I talked with Janara about what the new information has meant for her, and more importantly, why she thinks it's crucial that neurodiversity be understood as something far beyond the scope of autism. I should also say that this is such a kind of subtle way of thinking about these things that we actually recorded two conversations on two different days. Uh, the first was felled by persistent technical difficulties, and we ended up just calling it a day. But in doing so, we also sort of found our way to uh, a better way of talking about these things. So we did another conversation that was a lot more productive. So if you hear her refer to what we were talking about before, please know that's what's going on there. With that, I bring you the second and better conversation I had with Janara Nuremberg. Janara Nuremberg, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, Megan.
1: I should say welcome back because we started this conversation a couple of days ago and had the inevitable technical difficulty which may have been a blessing in disguise because I think we were trying to f- kind of figure out how to have this conversation at least I was. And so um I think that we can kind of take this in a more productive direction mostly by just starting off by talking about this term, neurodiversity, you wrote a book about it, and it comes up a lot in the context of autism. And autism has historically been associated with boys and men, though now increasingly girls. But you are particularly interested in how autism or autistic traits manifest in adult women. Why did you become interested in that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so neurodiversity itself, that term is a broad umbrella term that refers to neurological diversity. So that includes things like autism, ADHD, dyslexia, OCD, bipolar, schizophrenia, et cetera. And I became interested in the conversation around autism and adult women because about five or six years ago, I started Seeing a bunch of articles popping up referring to this lost generation of women not being uh, diagnosed. Um, a lot of these women were performing well, sort of just functioning in the world. You know, they had jobs, they were um, managers, leaders, and, and things like this. But there were aspects of themselves that they were always confused about or couldn't quite reconcile with what um, they. Thought they were supposed to be, or how they how they're supposed to act or think, and in terms of like what society was telling them, many women were showing up in therapist offices with um, burnout, depression, shame, severe anxiety. And I was at a point in my life where a lot of those things were were really resonating. I had just um, moved back to the U.S. from Asia where I'd been a reporter. And it was a confusing time for me. And so I just kind of dove into this research and started talking with other women. And so this became um, of interest to me both professionally and personally. And that's where the book um, Divergent Mind came from.
1: You write in the book, you had a child, you had a young child, and you know it was a pretty abrupt culture shock. you were you had been living in Asia, you moved back to the u s You have suddenly a toddler instead of an infant. I mean, there's lots of reasons that you could be feeling the way you did,
0: right, yeah, and I think it's interesting because there are so many things about where I was at in my life that we could take purely just for that like circumstantial contextual experience of like, I was exhausted and I was in a bit of culture shock and things like that. But there were a few things like one, what I was reading matched up with experiences I had had as a kid. And then second of all, I was surrounded by other women who were also exhausted and going through lots of changes and no one seemed to be having quite the level of challenge that I was. And so I think that's like an interesting conversation we can have is like, you know, how do you tease out what might be an actual neurological difference versus something that's just really hard in your life? And to be frank, oftentimes it's a mix of both. But for me, I think what was so difficult was that the amount of task switching, having to switch gears between like hyper-focusing on like a neuroscience article, you know, or doing research to then like handling just very everyday mundane things in my life. Just that the act of switching became very, very difficult for me. And I had had that since I was a kid. It was never labeled or diagnosed as anything. But you know, as for many women, as you get older and the amount of responsibilities that you take on, they become harder and harder to manage. And some people do fine and some people don't. And that's kind of when it raises the question of like, okay, is is there something going on here?
1: So what made you start to wonder if it was something more than just regular, you know, New mom, young person, person in the US, person in the modern world kind of stressed? Did you go to a therapist? Were you prescribed like psychotropic pharmaceuticals at some point? How did you kind of start thinking about it differently?
0: Right. Exactly. So I had seen several therapists and all I ever heard was like, oh, this just sounds like anxiety, you know? And I was like, well, I, I actually, I don't know what I'm anxious about. Like even in college, I was told that like way before this whole experience. And I was like, I don't feel anxious. Like, and even looking back, the anxiety came from when I had to switch gears, honestly. So I was a straight A college student and I did so well by hyper-focusing on, on what I was studying. But then when it came to like figuring out, you know, where to eat or like even just going out with friends and just like having fun, like that was difficult for me because I, my my brain just kind of like stayed in this like hyper focus mode. And I, d- I don't know how it is for other people. You know, um, we use this term like neurotypical. So I assume for neurotypicals, they can more easily switch between sort of different modes. Um, so that, that was there. And I remember asking my therapist about that in college, actually. And I, I don't remember what she said. But yeah, so to fast forward, you know, I'm in my early 30s. I'm, you know, in the US trying to you know, just figure out life and adulthood and parenthood and all these things. Yeah, it was just, I, I I saw a different therapist. At one point I did see a psychiatrist and I was just so alarmed that I was hearing different things depending on who I was talking to. And no one, no one actually seemed to probe that deep. Like the anxiety depression thing is just, is too easy, like that. Just, just like it, just flies off their mouths, right? And the same thing when you go and see like a primary care physician, they're like, "Oh, you have depression No, you have anxiety," right? And the psychiatrist I saw was like, "Oh, you know, here's some ADHD meds," like it was just like this bizarre experience, um, and so where I was coming from with the book and what I heard over and over and talking to, to other women was that it really fell on me to do my own research. So I started reading studies. I was reading the articles that were coming out like in the Atlantic in courts. And then I was talking with other women. And so for me my chosen route because of what I was seeing in psychiatry, which I felt was bizarre, was I didn't feel the need for any kind of official diagnosis. I wanted information. I wanted to better understand like what was going on with my brain. And um, so ultimately, I found that something like autism and ADHD felt like a fit, but I didn't feel the need for some kind of official diagnosis. And then the book explores what's underlying a lot of these different traits, which is an experience of heightened sensitivity in general.
1: And what was your relationship to the concept of autism? So like when you were a kid, was this something that people talked about in relation to boys? You were, you were growing up when in the, in the 90s, in the 80s and the 90s? Like what was the, you know, did, was autism like a thing in your school or in the classroom? Not at all.
0: Yeah. So I grew up in the 90s in the heart of San Francisco, went to like public schools. I grew up in like very diverse multiracial neighborhoods and schools. And, you know, at that time in the city, there was very much this climate of like, you know, openness, anything goes. It was like still kind of bohemian and artsy. I don't even really remember ever hearing about autism. I do remember hearing a little bit about. ADHD. Um but yeah, the way I grew up, like labels and diagnoses and these kinds of things, they just they weren't really talked about.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So because when we think about this, you know, huge increase in autism diagnoses, I guess that doesn't really start until the early 2000s. I'm trying to think, you know, when we really saw that that explosion in autism awareness. So, okay, but you were told that you were a sensitive kid what did being a sensitive kid mean to you yes
0: um sensitive was always like the sort of first descriptive attribute <laughs> that people would would say like whether it was like teachers or family members for me that meant just being really affected by things like people emotions things i would see on tv and then I was also pretty sensitive to like sensory input. Like I said, I, I got headaches pretty frequently, even as a child. Never had like any clear understanding of why, like where they were coming from. And and then also sensitive in the way of like, you know, just being really deeply curious too. I, I was just very sort of attuned to the adults around me. I was always asking questions. I always wanted to deeply understand things. So yeah, just kind of sensitive all around.
1: Did you have a hard time like playing with other kids or having friendships with people your own age? Were you more, did you relate more to adults?
0: Um, I didn't have trouble actually. So I was, I was a pretty outgoing kid. I did love adults, but I got along pretty well. I I didn't have any of those sort of like stereotypical markers, actually.
1: Okay. Okay. So when you started to think about other things that may be going on with you, you, did you start the book project as a way of trying to figure out what was going on in your own head? Or had you figured that out first and then you started the book?
0: Yeah, I had sort of an inkling and then the book really turned into like this investigative journey of what was going on with me. Um, And so it's, yeah, lots of, you know, expert interviews and discussions with other women about their experiences. And, you know, the book kind of unfolds in this way of like, okay, you know, something seems to be up. Let me dive into the research. You know, by the end, I really conclude that I don't think that a lot of these labels matter. They're, they're actually not set in stone. The, you know, the DSM changes them every so many years. So it really raises the question of, like, what are we doing with these labels? Why do we have them? What is their utility? And then, you know, where do we go with them in the future,
1: and what are examples of these labels? You talk about sensory processing disorder for one thing. What what are some of the others?
0: Yeah. So I really focused on five, actually. So there's this general personality trait um, that's called the highly sensitive person. So this was something identified by researcher Elaine Aaron, and then has been really backed up with research at UCSF and UC Berkeley. And this is just sort of, you know, a general experience of sensitivity to like light, sound, um, violence on TV, um, being really uncomfortable with being rushed, you know, just sort of like a general sensitivity. And then, then I looked at autism and ADHD, of course. And then I looked at um, synesthesia, which is this really fascinating trait where, the senses get crossed. So someone will see colors with letters or numbers. I, I focused on something called mirror touch synesthesia, which is um, the experience of where you physically and emotionally feel what another person is feeling. And it's been well-documented by Joel Salinas, who is a neurologist at Mass General. And then, yeah, I looked at sensory processing disorder, which is most often identified in kids because kids are the ones who are complaining of this kind of sensory sensitivity to physical textures like their clothes or like the smells or tastes of food. And so the kind of common theme throughout all of these, you know, these five different traits um, is just, you know, real heightened sensitivity.
1: Okay, so this is where... We, I think this is why it's really important to have this conversation because, you know, there's one version of my listening to what you just said and thinking, oh, OK, that makes that makes perfect sense. These categories are a lot more complex. These experiences are a lot more complex than we often think. But then there's another version where I'm like, well, maybe people are just being picky, like <laughs> like how do you separate a kid in the lat- in, in the last category you described from just a kid who's a picky eater, like you see those kids they don't want certain foods touching other foods that's very common, right? like the green beans can't touch the mashed potatoes on the plate. Is that always an, an example of this category? like how do you even think of, start to think about that?
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a great question, and I think um, you know I think we talked about this before, but it's I mean what what a neurologist or a doctor is looking at is really the experience of distress, right? Not not just difference. Like they're not just like, okay, sure, like a kid might be picky. And again, my research really focuses on adults. But, you know, if an experience of heightened sensitivity is getting in the way of someone really functioning in the world, maybe like doing their job or concentrating in school, you know, Medication is always kind of like a last resort, but it's like, okay, what's what's necessary in the meantime? Like, do the parents need to be doing something differently? Um, is there some kind of therapy that's required? So I think it's important to focus on the experience of distress. And that is going to be individual. And it, it's difficult to apply judgment to any one person's experience because you don't you don't totally know what it's like for them, like how much anxiety is. Sort of associated with that experience, right? and I, I totally agree. It's like where where do we draw the line? And that's why I think it's just like this very individual sort of case by case
1: And I guess then the question is, why does it matter? So a lot of what you talk about in the book is the way the world, society, as it's organized, doesn't really allow for these other sorts of traits. so talk more about that like why why should it matter if somebody is just like kind of sensitive to the way somebody's mouth sounds when they chew or if this is like something that really needs to be addressed
0: well sure i mean i think we can all agree that our like modern western society with all that it's all the gifts that it has offered is also like really kind of intensively aggressive and competitive and things like that so what we see with when we look at the experience of, of really sensitive people, and again, it's not just sensory processing disorder, it's, you know, folks who are autistic or have ADHD or are just highly sensitive in general, which, by the way, is actually 20% of the population, this, this, this number of 20% really consistently shows up that 20% of the population just is actually born into the world with more sensitive nervous systems. And so it's a significant chunk of the population, whether they have some kind of diagnosis or label or not. And so I think it raises the question of just like, you know, how do we want to function as a society? Where, where do we want to go? What kind of culture do we want to have? What kind of environment do we want to create with our neighbors, with our families in, in school um, and our workplaces and that kind of thing? there's kind of an opportunity there, right? To like learn from the experiences of sensitive people. Like, are there ways that we can, you know, mellow out, right? Like how we function or even, you know, have more empathy and compassion and that kind of thing. So for me, that that's where the conversation should go. Like, it's not at all suggesting that the entire world needs to cater to sensitive people because I agree it's important for people to be, Resilient and and tough to the extent that they can be, and really persevere in the world. But there there's also a balance.
1: Yeah, you write in the book. We all know by now that if workplaces, family, friends, bus drivers, rideshare service drivers, front desk people, and others knew about diverse temperaments, traits, and neurological makeups, then we might be far less anxious about interacting with them and much better able to quote perform. Okay, so what would be an example of say a bus driver understanding diverse neurological makeups?
0: Sure. Um, I'm trying to remember what I was thinking when I wrote that sentence. Like I'm sure I had some kind of image in my head.
1: <laughs> or like just, just not <laughs> yelling at you. I feel like bus drivers always yell at you, especially like now there's this thing in New York where if you there's like the regular bus, but then the express bus and the express bus, you have to buy your ticket actually like outside on the sidewalk. And I find it immensely stressful because you have to it, anyway, I, I won't go into it. But like I have this, this little this change in procedure has resulted in me getting yelled at by bus drivers several times. And it's extremely upsetting. So yeah, that's a great. Example. <laughs> maybe they can just be nicer. But I don't I'm not sure this is like particular to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I okay, I'm thinking, you know, let's say someone has like some sensory issues, you know, along with anxiety or something and they're walking in and they're fumbling trying to find their fare, you know, and then the bus driver gets irritated or frustrated. You know, I don't know, like sure that's annoying, maybe the person could have been prepared before they actually stepped onto the bus. So again, I don't totally remember what I was thinking, but I mean, I think if it's what it points to is just these very mundane interactions that we all have every day that kind of pile up, right? So if we had like a general awareness, understanding, sensitivity, more patience around, okay, like everyone's different. Everyone handles situations differently. You know, clearly this person is struggling, you know, what, to get the, their, the money ready or the ticket ready or whatever it is. It's not that that person is necessarily like, failing or doing it on purpose or, or whatever, like, you know, maybe that person just kind of struggles. Maybe they didn't plan out like, you know, using their executive functioning, like all the steps required to have their bus fare ready at that exact (laughs) moment or, you know, I don't know. I mean, this is, we're getting really granular here, but it's just like a general approach to other human beings.
1: Yeah. So, did you start to feel better once you started digging into this? So like, what was it like to be looking into this while kind of sorting out your own psyche?
0: Yeah, exactly. So that's why I think information is so important. And it's more important than like actually having some kind of formal diagnosis or label, unless you actually need that for like accommodations in school or work. Because for me, what happened was you know, I didn't even know that all of this research was out there. I didn't even know that there were words for this kind of thing. Right. And so discovering it for me and for many people is usually like this pretty big aha moment. You know, it's like feeling seen, it's like feeling your experience, you know, you're seeing it written down on paper by someone else. And so it's pretty powerful. So What usually happens for people and and what happened for me too is like, you know, in the beginning you, you get so excited. You're like, oh, okay, like this is this is great. This is so interesting. I need to learn more. And um, you know, and then as you move through the material and you kind of integrate it into your life, then it be it just becomes normal, right? And it's not like this thing that you're like constantly thinking about or talking about. But yeah, in the beginning it's it's like very sort of affirming and like relieving.
1: Okay, so did you have a diagnosis or did you diagnose yourself? Was it suddenly like, okay, I am neuroatypical in this way?
0: Yeah, so I think for me in the beginning, it was like this excitement around neurodiversity itself, right? Because this was this framework that I had been independently thinking about for a long time, like I referred to in the book, like diversity of temperaments and things like that. So I was excited. Sort of philosophically, to see that there was a conversation happening, and I write in the book about how you know I was um thinking about this on a plane, and you know, and then I landed and I started googling and it turned out that um this 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 guy that I'd seen on my street all the time walking was one of the foremost scholars in this, and so we became friends and so there's a discovery of like the term neurodiversity, and then, yeah, within neurodiversity, so I started. I always knew I was sensitive so that was like not really like a big thing. When I started to see that this might be something like autism and ADHD, those were the two that I definitely like more strongly identified with and associated with. But like I said, by the end of the book, I'm kind of like, "Well, I don't know. Like these labels are just kind of made up things. Like it's I don't I don't see any of these as like hard categories, like hard boxes. And so it's more empowering just to be able to understand the mind in this way and to understand psychiatry in this way, as opposed to zeroing in on like this one word that entirely captures who you
1: are. Right. 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 And it also seems like in men being sort of quirky or neuroatypical, whatever you want to call it, it has, it's kind of plays out differently because maybe we've come to expect it. Like, you know, we think of autism more as a male thing, or at least we have historically. Um, and then maybe in women, there's just like a sort of, there's a, there's just a kind of underlying disbelief that one would be on the spectrum. Like I I often joke about myself, like, oh, I'm autistic in that way. And it's a joke. And part of the reason it's a joke is because like, I'm clearly not autistic. I don't think I'm autistic, but like, there may be women out there who are on the spectrum and don't realize it because it's just manifesting differently. And they've also become so good at acting as if. So say more about that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that's something that I discuss in the book. And that is, you know, definitely part of like mainstream conversations now around neurodiversity and autism in particular is looking at, you know, we have all these stereotypes about what means to be autistic or what it looks like. And the truth is most studies have been on men and boys. So that has kind of defined how we think about autism. With this growing awareness of women and how women kind of often fly under the radar or they're very good at passing, it's an interesting conversation. So I think what happens, it goes back to this you know, distress versus difference thing. Okay. Because you're right. I think a lot of people do have aspects of themselves that could be considered on the spectrum. Right. But usually when it, like if someone feels a need for some kind of diagnosis, it's, it's prompted, it's catalyzed by a lot of distress in their life. Um, usually it's accompanied by, depression, anxiety, or burnout and just like things not quite adding up. There's a lot of confusion. Like why can't they perform well in their job or in their relationships and that kind of thing. So to me, that's sort of the the differentiator is like how much distress is there versus how much is it just describing kind of a personality difference.
1: Mm-hmm. But now in thinking about this, okay, I'm just going to use myself as a purely hypothetical example. Like you can have you can be a certain way and have distress about it because of your situation. Like say I have certain traits where I'm aloof or I don't want to do certain things or I'm very particular about what I like and what I don't like, or you know, I'm not sort of receptive to people's emotions all the time. Okay, if I am in a cohabitating relationship, for example, if I'm married or I live with my partner, that kind of thing, can could end up causing me distress because it's making the other person unhappy and it's causing problems. Now, if I take all that and I just live by myself and do what I want when I want, it doesn't cause me any distress. But the issues are still there. The traits are still there. So what do you do with that?
0: Correct. And I think this is a great question and I think that, you know, to be honest, I think that Sometimes people do have stuff going on, actually, neurologically, that what happens with adults is that they can tailor their environments, right? So some of those some of those things don't get triggered. And so, sure, they, they go their whole lives and it doesn't really get pointed out. It's not an issue. Or if it is an issue at some point, they can change the, the situation. And, you know, that's fine. So... I guess the the conversation there is, well, A, with kids, they don't have that option, which is why a lot of these things are, are discovered earlier, like in childhood. Secondly, for an adult, like let's say an adult does have some awareness of that and they're like, hmm, like I'm curious about this. Like I actually... I would like to look into this or I actually, maybe I want to challenge that in myself. Like why, why is it so hard for me to like live with someone else? Like what, what is that? Like, is there something there? And so I think for some people it becomes a point of like growth, like a goal that they might have, like, okay, like this is important to me. Or like, maybe they want to become a parent, you know, and they know that they have a really hard time with like noise and like sleep challenges. And like, you know, maybe for them, they do want to start looking into something neurological. But, you know, again, even just this conversation, we're having points to sort of the relativity of of labels, right? Because someone could find themselves in one situation where the label would be needed or it would definitely be a fit, but then in another context, it might not be applicable at all. So it's, I don't know, it, it's fascinating. It's just not as like fixed as I think many of us think things are within medicine and psychiatry.
1: Yeah, no. And I mean, I'm thinking too, like, I always talk about how I hated being a kid, like, because I, I hated like having to do kid things. And I, like, at recess, I couldn't stand recess generally because it was, it was chaotic, like, it wasn't organized. I, I loved, um, You know, when we went back in the classroom and we were sitting in rows and you knew where your seat was. And actually, I remember, I don't know, not to make this entirely about myself, but I remember being so happy when I went from like kindergarten to first grade because kindergarten, we were just running around. There were no desks in rows. It was just like basically a big recess, (laughs) like a big indoor recess all the time. And I remember just like being euphoric at sitting in rows in the classroom and like, Everybody facing the same direction. But I interpreted it then, as I always have, as just wanting to be older. Like I just wanted to be a bigger kid. I always wanted to be older. I hated being a little kid, but maybe there was some neurological component to that.
0: It's very possible. And I think, I mean, what you're describing is so interesting. And is honestly what I did hear from a lot of the women that I that I spoke to. And it's, again, like, okay, is it necessary to apply a label to this or not? Um, you know, another interesting part of this conversation that I didn't get too much into in the book, but a little bit, I, I spoke with one therapist who specializes in this, is, like, you know, this notion of being gifted, which is like very like controversial in some circles, but there are, there are just like some kids who like are mature and, and different and just like kind of just a little bit beyond their years. And, you know, they usually get this label of, of gifted and there actually is a lot of crossover in the neurodiversity space because for, for many women and girls, actually they, they were labeled as gifted when they were young. But then the research around giftedness actually shows that there's a lot of accompanying um, anxiety and depression because they just feel things more intensely and they observe things and they learn things fast. And so they're just aware of a lot at a young age. And so they kind of carry that with them throughout their lives. So what, what happens is that some of these people also later... Realize that it was actually a little bit more on the autism spectrum or, um, even ADHD as well, because ADHD can imply having like a lot of different, like deep interests. Um, and so that can sometimes uh, accompany, um, giftedness. So yeah, I mean, your, your experience, uh, as a kid could be, you know, something interesting to look at.
1: I mean, I was labeled gifted when I was younger. And then I, if I'm recalling this correctly, I think at some point I was just like, I flunked out of it. Like they decided I wasn't gifted anymore. <laughs> so they, like like I, I did really well up until like fifth grade or something. And then suddenly I was out of the, but I also changed schools at that time. There there was a lot, lot going on. Okay. But let's talk about ADHD for a minute because I always associate that with being hyper, like literally can't sit still in your chair, but it's more than that, sounds like
0: right. Yeah, so um, I, I think we talked about this a little bit before, but um, ADHD the the stereotype we have is yeah, like a little boy who can't stay still. Um, the research that there that we have on on girls is is showing that there's a little bit more of like the inattentive type, so the the spacing out and daydreaming. So while a girl might be sitting still in classroom because they've been told, that, you know, that's that's the proper way to be or whatever. Internally, their internal lives are are quite active. And so they might be kind of all over the place and in different spaces sort of inside their minds. And so then what happens, again, because my book really focuses on adult women, you know, these girls are not really labeled with anything. um, But then when they get older and they're adults and they start having a really difficult time at work or in college, they're confused because they, you know, they've never been told anything. They've never been like given a label sometimes through, through hyper-focusing, which actually is part of ADHD. So ADHD is not really a deficit of attention. It's more a challenge of regulating it and like directing it. Right. So, so what a lot of adult women do is they, they hyper-focus. So they will get really good in like one specific area to sort of compensate for the, the distractedness. And so they might excel actually in certain areas. Like with my experience, the hard part came from like switching from being in that state to whatever else I needed to do, like, you know, the dishes or getting the groceries and, you know, all of that tasks switching that's required.
1: So like what would happen? So are you talking, I mean, it sounds like you're talking about after, after college now. So like you would be working, you know, you're, you're a journalist, you would be working on an article. And then what would happen if suddenly you had to cook dinner or like, would you just physically not be able to do it? Like what, what would the scene look like?
0: Yeah. So for me, the experience is just like, it's kind of like a slowness you know, and I, and I don't know, like I don't know if other people have that, but it, it, it's kind of like this having to reorient and having to very sort of intentionally switch gears as opposed to like seamlessly switching. Like, OK, I'm done with this thing. I'm closing my laptop. I'm going to get my shoes on, walk downstairs, you know, grab my wallet and like go to the store. It, it, it took a lot more like mental energy to sort of be like, okay, Janara, like now you need to do this. Okay. And then you need to do that. And like, like now I'm much better at this because, you know, I did discover all this research. And so I was sort of able to read and work with different tools and also just get better at these things through practice. But at that time it was confusing and it took a lot of energy for me.
1: And did this play out like in your relationships? I mean, you you talked about how this was sort of became more noticeable in college. Like, was this making it hard in your social life or your personal life? Well, see, not so much in college
0: because college for me was just like all hyper focus. You know, like I I did well. I was academically academically. I was I was very focused on school. Um, I think I just like studied all the time. Um, I had like a a tight, like close circle of friends and, and like, that was, that was it. Um, it really, it just, it didn't really start becoming a problem for me until I probably most significantly after becoming a parent and moving back to the U S and this is such a common story. So a lot of the women that I interviewed, said the same thing that, you know, after becoming a parent, you know, just the amount of things to think about and manage and like switch gears just increased exponentially. And that's when they kind of realized that they had challenges in in certain areas. And, and then another thing that happens, this, this was not the case for me, but for a lot of women I talked to as their kids got older and their kids struggled with certain things. Maybe their kids would get a diagnosis and then they themselves through that process would realize like, oh my gosh, everything I'm hearing or that, the, their, that their therapist is describing describes me as well. Oh my gosh, I also
1: have, you know, X, Y, and Z. We're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about our sponsor, BetterHelp. Let's face it, we're living in challenging times. If you find yourself feeling sad, anxious, or like something's keeping you from achieving your goals or being happy, you are not alone. The good news is that there's an easy, affordable option for counseling, BetterHelp. And as an unspeakable podcast listener, there's also a special offer in it for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private environment and start communicating with a therapist in under 24 hours. It is not a crisis line or self-help. It is actual professional therapy done securely online. And it's a lot more affordable than traditional offline counseling. If you wanna change therapists, it's easy and free to do that. And maybe best of all, you're not just limited to counselors in your immediate area. You have access to therapists from all over, and if there's a particular expertise you need, for instance, someone specializing in family conflicts or trauma, or grief, self-esteem, LGBT issues, you can select for that. Now, here's the part for you. As an Unspeakable listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting the show's sponsor, BetterHelp, at betterhelp.com unspeakable. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health at BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P slash unspeakable. And now back to the interview. We have historically heard about that with fathers and sons, right? The, The son or the child will get a diagnosis and suddenly it's like, oh, actually, dad is very similar to this. But it sounds like more recently, the mothers are kind of catching up. But but again, is it is it playing out? It's it's playing out differently. And I guess maybe there's no answer to this. It does it manifest differently in women just because be- because of some biological reason, or because women are just kind of faking it better better at faking it or passing, or it's some combination of both.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, we, I've, we don't really know, right. Until like the funding is really going towards that kind of research and they're doing like, you know, all the brain scans necessary. And like, you know, we don't really have that answer, but I mean, through more like interviews and qualitative research, you know, it does seem to be the case that because of how girls and women are, socialize, you know, like sort of the expectations, you know, to, you know, be good with people or be friendly or to, you know, be helpful and and things like this. Um, Some of the stereotypical markers don't show up or the women and girls are channeling some of the hyper-focus or fixation or what, you know, we're sometimes called like special interests. They're funneling that energy into more socially acceptable things like, um, and we talked about this before, like, you know, theater or fashion or even other people, you know, maybe they become like a psychologist or, um, you know, a writer or, you know, something that that, that fits, that matches these inclinations.
1: Well, but I feel like you're sort of talking about two different things because there's the, the there's the sort of becoming, getting into theater, for instance, that seems to be kind of appealing to a, a, an instinct to perform, to kind of put on different masks, to be somebody other than you maybe are. And the you know, something like, and as you were talking before, I was thinking about, well, how much of this is just sort of what we think of as an artist's temperament? Like, you know, i I think of, and I just saw the um the Lost Daughter, the adaptation of the Ferrante book uh, with Olivia Coleman. And so much of it is about, you know, this this woman just really struggling with motherhood and not being able to do her work the way she wants to do it. I mean, it's just such classic, uh, kind of, you know, the difficulty of being a female artist, especially if you have children. I mean, this has been explored for for centuries, but um like to sort of not be able to switch gears, that's also you could say that to not to not be able to get up from your desk because you're you're writing or you're painting or you're doing something creative, that could be an artistic temperament or it could be this neurological phenomenon that you're describing, or maybe a person with uh, this artistic temperament over-indexes for this neurological phenomenon?
0: Well, I mean, I've had these exact same thoughts, believe me. I mean, I would say even recently, you know, even having like some distance and space from, you know, the book and, and the process of writing the book. And I, I have a longstanding interest in, in in looking at how people with, you know, s- any form of mental difference really do strongly inform the arts. And of course we know that, but we often have those discussions in terms of like depression, right. And like bipolar and addiction, right. Like that's a stereotype, like these people in Hollywood are these writers and they're so destructive or whatever. And that's like, but their genius also comes from that. I, I do wonder about the, you know, Possible other things that don't get as much attention because they're not as as dramatic, but yeah, something like autism or even ADHD. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I I think that's an important conversation and and is something that we should be doing more research on because I I frankly do think that all different types of neurodivergent traits are very present in you know the artist community and in Hollywood and. Um, it again raises this question of like you know how much do we want or need to pathologize these things and how can we change the conversation how can we re- reframe these things and say well wow like these really deep intense sensitivities are responsible for giving us you know so many beautiful gifts to the world but then the flip side is that they're also not always appreciated or they're, you know, sort of stigmatized into the world and so sometimes it leads to destruction.
1: Well, or they work in some ways but not others. You know, there's the whole concept of the art monster, right? The the artist who is incredibly sensitive about ideas and about characters that they're creating or, you know, whatever they're putting on 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 the page or the canvas or whatever it is, but then their interpersonal relationships take a back seat. Like you can be, you can be incredibly uh, intuitive and emotionally connected with your characters. If you're a writer, for instance, or your ideas, but then turn around and and the people in your life, you're sort of happy to ignore, right. Or you're, or or you will take somebody in your life and make a character out of them on the page and, you know, create, potentially a a brilliant piece of work, but then you've betrayed the person in in real life. So that seems to me like potentially an example of like having a sort of quote unquote autistic trait in that you're, you're aloof enough that you're cut off from the actual human beings in your real life, but you're deeply connected to the art that they inspire.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think that, 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 that can happen. I think it's an important conversation again around like, how much does a person make space for these different traits or aspects of themselves, you know, like in service to their work or their artistry? Um, you know, if you're, you know, what is the balance there? Like, how much, you know, are you keeping like your family and friendships, like in sort of in good health while you're like deeply pursuing whatever your artistic endeavor is? Yeah, these are things I think about all the time and I think are important. But I think the point is like we need to have these these conversations and, you know, sort of increase awareness and really destigmatize while at the same time, people who might be discovering that they do have, you know, trade X or Y, how can they, you know, be themselves with the most integrity? Right. Because it's it's also not like a permission slip to just, like, do whatever or be however they want. Like, it's it's a balance, and I think that's important for for people to remember.
1: So what do you think is missing from the conversation? How would you like to see this whole discussion reframed?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot. I mean, first of all, like I was saying, you know, before, I think I would love— for w- when people think about this term neurodiversity and kind of like the movement and the awareness that it's bringing to the world like to to remember that it it does encompass so many different traits including like the harder ones like that people don't always like to talk about like bipolar or even schizophrenia and You know, in the book, I interview people, um, for example, Ellen Sachs, who's this amazing um, legal professor at USC. And, you know, she has schizophrenia and she's very open about the accommodations that she is needed. So, you know, she's great with advising her students. She's not so great with like teaching a big hall of, of students. And so she has someone actually like teach her students but you know she's written several books and you know she's a really amazing person and contributing to the world and you know she has a medication regimen and she's recently married and you know but it's just like it's an example of of integration you know she is who she is and she's showing up fully in the world but then you know the people around her have also made adjustments you know and to me that's like a beautiful example and so I would like to see just more awareness and discussion of things like that, because I think that's how we ultimately remove stigma is, is, is through integration. And then obviously we want to see the same thing with autism and ADHD, but I think there's already a lot of conversation happening around those two things in particular, which is why I'm concerned with expanding the conversation. So yeah, so that's, that's been my goal. You know, I started this thing called the Neurodiversity Project where we have events and do interviews. And my goal has been always to integrate these, these conversations and this way of thinking about the human mind, um, integrate it into, into society at large. And then the book gets into that. And then I actually recently started working with with writers and mentoring and coaching and um and also agenting because I want to get, you know, other neurodiver- neurodivergent voices into the publishing world. There's also lots of conversations happening within Hollywood right now which I'm really excited about and I you know I'm in conversation with people because you know like we talked about before, you know, neurodivergent traits are very common in Hollywood and so I think through representation, you know, better stories will be told, the stereotypes will start to shed and then, you know, integration will happen.
1: Right. Representation that goes beyond a beautiful mind. Right. And, and Rain Man. Well, but as soon as we start talking about things like representation, inevitably there's a sort of political dimension. You know, I I have noticed that there is a kind of activist community around, uh, neurodiversity. It pops up on social media and places like Twitter. Um, have you had any interaction with, with that world?
0: Yes. And we, (laughs) we've talked about this before, but yeah, I, I am very concerned with this. So I think, you know, for me, given my background, like growing up in the heart of San Francisco, which I absolutely loved and there was very much the spirit of like anything goes. And that went from, you know, neurodiversity to, you know, racial identities, to sexuality, like, like everything, right. Like you, and probably many folks who are listening, you know, I am disturbed by how extreme things things have gotten because I, I I see a lot of the emphasis on like identity and representation as as one stepping stone to, towards like you know just more equality in society and that kind of thing but I don't at all think that that's the end point I think the ultimate goal is actually to transcend identity where like these things, are just not even a big deal. We don't even have to talk about it, you know? You mean you want to erase
1: people, Janara? You want to (laughs) erase people's existence? Right, You want to deny their humanity?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I just, like, I just see these as, like, different levels. Like, in my mind, I just see them as, as different goalposts, right? And, like, having better representation is great. But the ultimate goal is for, like, none of this stuff to matter, right? And that's what integration is. So when it comes to neurodiversity, yeah, I think there are a lot of extremists out there. I shared with you before that I've, I had one incident where I um, was putting together this really cool conference full of like many diverse thinkers of different backgrounds who actually most of them were neurodivergent in different ways, whether it was bipolar or dyslexia or synesthesia. And I got a lot of pushback on Twitter by a lot of sort of extremists who were basically like, well, you know, why aren't you featuring so-and-so and so-and-so? And And every person named was some kind of very strong autistic voice who, you know, the autistic community was very familiar with. And I was like, you know, and I didn't respond to any of this because I thought this was ridiculous. But in, in my mind, I'm thinking, well what I'm doing is neurodiversity. This is neurological diversity and neurodiversity is not just for autism. And so, yeah, I mean, that's. I think that's part of where my concern comes from is that I've seen this sort of very narrow thinking that somehow this movement is only for one community, which is, you know, that's the opposite of what the term means. And I think one of the comments actually was like, you know, oh, like neurodiversity is not for, quote, mild things. And I was so struck by that because I just was like, wow, there's so much judgmentalism there. Like, it was just like, wow. Like, so to look at someone with bipolar and say that it's like mild just because there's like a medication available, it really showed me the extent to which this was just some kind of extremist take. You know, and um, but it it left a lasting impact on me because I was just like, wow, like for a term and a movement that is supposed to be so inclusive to then give rise to this very narrow thinking, um, you know, it was it was just really shocking.
1: Well, and I know, you know, when we when we spoke before, you were talking about how you haven't really run into this connection between extreme literalism And autistic traits, as much as people tend to talk about it, you know, because I've talked a lot about how on Twitter you see a certain kind of personality type, cognitive profile reacting in really extreme ways, taking things very literally, not seeing nuance. There does seem to be like a very big space in places like Twitter for this. And then like, I'm fascinated by there's, you know, there's this connection between anime, for instance, and people on the spectrum. And then there's, you know, of course, ding, ding, ding. Now we're going to get into, I'm going to say gender dysphoria. We're not going to go down that path, but like, for instance, something like gender dysphoria is, associated with being on the spectrum. And then there's a lot of people in the trans community that associate with anime avatars, whatever. There's like this whole sort of cultural, you know, kind of system of memes and tropes that, that come along with this. And I know that's not something that, that you have studied particularly, but I wonder if part of the backlash comes from people who have a tendency to see things in black and white and not be able to see the the whole picture or is that in and of itself too productive and literal of a take
0: well i think it's interesting i mean i again like did not look at most of those like that spaces and sort of the the junctions that you're that you're referring to because i in my book i looked at you know kind of just like other women like me who were like, you know, in the world working, they were just trying to reconcile like some challenges they were noticing and sort of, you know, kind of having these wake ups or these kind of aha moments and then kind of chronicling the path forward. Um, Anecdotally, I mean, I've seen some of the things that you're referring to. Um, I mean, it is sort of an old sort of outdated belief now that, you know, people on the autism spectrum are like complete literal thinkers. Um, that's yeah, so that's like not um reflective of of the research now. But what I'm wondering actually, you know, as you're describing those different spaces, and I, you know, we kind of did talk about this before was, you know, in any sort of, you know, marginalized community, there's also going to be like a certain amount of trauma, right? And so if if people are coming to the table with an experience in the world that is already you know hard to navigate, their you know their identity is whatever looked down upon or marginalized in some way and then you know there if if there's trauma then there then there could be a lot more like lashing out, for example. So I'm wondering if that might be a more accurate characterization of, of, of some of the spaces that you're describing, like on Twitter, for example, um, in terms of the like dysphoria and anime, I, I'm not
1: sure I I didn't really look into that. Um, that's a whole other project. You You can make that your next project. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. People are in pain. I mean, what's obvious in these social media spaces is people are in tremendous pain. Um, regardless of where it's coming from, it's, it's coming out in their reactions to things. So,
0: yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I would be so interested to look at, you know, how, how people in different groups handle and respond to trauma and sort of like the different funnels there for them, like even like the different political camps. Cause I I just see so much difference between like the left and the right, for example, in terms of how people experience trauma and process trauma and then like where they go with that. Like, so I think that there's a lot of channeling of trauma into social issues when it comes to the left. And then with the right, it seems like trauma gets channeled into like tribe building. Um, And of course it's not like black or white like that. And there's some crossover, but I feel like I'm seeing that general theme. So yeah, that's, that's another conversation.
1: Yeah. Well, and again, I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, like I often get accused of intellectualizing my feelings and like sort of I mean, I don't, there's not a lot in my life that I would classify as trauma, but you know, for what it's worth kind of taking negative or painful experiences and trying to shape them into something that's in my writing or in my work, or just like take confusing or painful emotional experiences and sort of reformulate them as ideas and I have always looked at that as a coping mechanism and something I really, like a gift, like it's something I really value in myself that I'm able to do. But I'm also now wondering, see, this is power of suggestion, if this is like an example of some kind of some kind of trait of, of, of the sort that you're describing. Like maybe this is actually like a, a difference in brain, in brain functioning. This is a neurological phenomenon.
0: I mean- I, but it's like, who's to say,
1: and right? who cares? Also, who cares? Well,
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I care. I think that's really interesting and fascinating. And to some degree, I relate to that. I mean, the world of ideas for me has always been my comfort zone. Like I'm in college, like I, you know, I designed a major in political theory and race relations. And, um, you know, I left high school at 16 and started community college and I was just like obsessed with like political philosophy. And, um, so I think what you're describing does like capture many of us who go on to be like writers or researchers or journalists. Like, um, it, it is a way to channel, you know the harder parts of of being alive, um, and like I think that's fine. You know, then the question is like, sure, for some people maybe it's not healthy or maybe it's like destructive, and maybe somebody else would feel the need to apply some kind of label to that. But then, you know, it just raises the question again of like how and when and why and what is the utility of labels, and it just seems so subjective to me.
1: Yeah, and when I say who cares, what I mean really is like with any of these things, it's kind of, you know, if if your life is working for you, if it's basically working for you, it doesn't really matter why you are the way you are. I kind of, that's sort of how I operate. Like, you know, it doesn't, if if you understand the way, if you understand why you are the way you are, or it's working for you okay, it's not hurting anybody else, like, what does it really matter how you got that way? Like, I think that there's a lot of maybe two in women and this goes back to what you were saying i think there might be a lot of you know having certain traits but feeling sort of shamed shameful about it and trying to get yourself to be a different way like i shouldn't be this way i should be able to multitask something like that for instance like this is you know the the the, the secrets of highly successful people are that they can do five things at once and if i can't do that then then i'm getting something wrong and there must be some kind of like TED talk I could attend that would enable me to function better, you know?
0: Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a a great point. And I think that we, we, we do get those messages all the time that like, we shouldn't be this way. And I think that the growth that many of us experience and that I have certainly been experiencing very recently, actually, like, just like late last year and this year is really kind of just, taking ownership of that and really claiming it like, okay, I just like crave intellectual engagement. Like that's just part of who I am. Like, you know, and it's, and, and realizing that that's, that's my responsibility then to like seek that out in my life to, you know, to, yeah, to, to get it, to create opportunities for that. And I I do think that there is messaging, especially for women that, we're not supposed to be that way. We're not supposed to have like these intense intellectual cravings, like that we should be content with something less than that. But I think, um, you know, and probably for your for yourself as well, you know, I think it's just like, no, like that is a major part of our power and what drives us in the world and like we need to run with that. Um, but I think for too many people, yeah, they think they need to just be like, more chill or something. <laughs>
1: yeah. Or just get over it, get past it. I mean, but I do think getting over it, there's a lot to be said for that. Um, you know, getting hung up on stuff is rarely useful, but, um, I, yeah, I do think there's, there's tremendous value in, you know, taking what you might see as your deficit and making it your strength. I mean, that's what, that's what people do, right? Like I know that, you, you know, there's a moment in your book where you talk, you say Walmart's, Most productive distribution center is staffed almost entirely by neurodivergent employees. What's that about? Just real quickly here.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't know a ton about that. Um, That came up. I had spoken to Steve Silberman, who, um, you know, he's great. He's the author of Neurotribes, and he writes about it in his book. But I think, yeah, I don't know if it was just that the people at that center were maybe they had compatible working styles or maybe they just um, because they were in an environment that was more open and accepting of who they were, they could really perform better rather than like worrying about how they were being perceived. Um, so I'm not sure, but there, I mean, there's certainly a precedent for this. There are a lot of like autism hiring um initiatives like at Microsoft and different tech companies. Um, Again, I'm very critical of that because I just, it all focuses on autism. It's invariably mostly
1: men. And And what does that mean? Like people who are extremely good at math and coding? I mean, like (laughs) not to, again, like there's gotta, there's gotta be a big overlap. You know, they're going to get the smartest people anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's young men who, who are autistic and, you know, that's fine. And that it's great. Like they definitely, this is like a huge improvement to, to get jobs. And, um, yeah, most of it is like coding and software development. Um, but again, that is not neurodiversity, that is autism. And so one of my biggest criticisms right now is like, well, let's just call that autism. That's not neurodiversity. And too often, In all the headlines, like literally in major magazines right now, there'll be something about like, okay, this is why neurodiversity is powerful, you know, an in-depth interview with such and such autism organization. And so it just really shows me that everyone right now thinks that neurodiversity is a synonym for autism. And that's why I'm critical. Like, you know, I would love to see a company like Microsoft hiring people who have schizophrenia or who are openly bipolar. Like that's, you know, it's it's just as as valuable. And autism is one form of neurodivergence and definitely needs advocacy and it's it's super important. But, you know, all these other things are too, and we can't use the term neurodiversity if we're really only talking about autism, because then that's not neurological diversity.
1: That's so interesting. And actually, this might be a, I don't know how useful a place this is to end on, but you know, I was recently, um, I was invited to uh, a party that had like a lot of tech people, a lot of, you know, not my crowd, not my usual crowd, like people who were um, in, in, fintech or just, you know, coders and, you know, Silicon Valley types. And there were a couple things that were very different about this party from the ones that I usually go to, which is that everybody had a name tag. We had a name tag as soon as we walked in and there were, um, I can't remember what she was calling that, but there were sort of little, you know, people were mingling and having drinks and such, but then there would be these kind of breakout sessions where we would get into a circle and kind of like answer a certain question or something about ourselves or you know and I, initially i thought it was just really bizarre and kind of I- infantile but i found that it was actually i i understood why it was happening i was like oh okay like i don't have to worry about kind of mingling and and introducing myself in a way that you know, it seems sort of organic to the conversation, like letting somebody know who I am without making some weird formal announcement. Like, you know, social situations are really, really tricky, like extremely sort of nuanced encounters. And this was kind of just an organized way of letting people know who everyone was. So in order to, to, to facilitate socialization. And later I joked to the To the hostess, I said, wow, is that like, you know, that was such a weird party. Like, we don't do that in in publishing circles. You go to a party and it's like, you know, it's the in crowd and the out crowd. And it's just it's like, you know, it's like social warfare. And I said, is this are you doing this? Because everyone's kind of like on the spectrum or something. And she was like, yeah, actually, this is what um, this is what parties are often like in Silicon Valley. And it is because there are so many people who have trouble socializing in the traditional way. And I just thought that was fascinating.
0: Well, I think that's interesting. And I think like even that notion of like, oh, you know, having trouble socializing in a traditional way. Like I, you know, I think we need to change that script. Like who's to say, you know, what what is the norm or whatever. And, you know, even myself, like I totally prefer what you describe. I just think it makes sense, right? It's like you know, yeah. I mean, why not? Like I've, I've always loved like group stuff and like, like circle events where everyone like introduces themselves, where you, you know, you just get a really solid sense of who each person is. And then you can kind of like direct your interactions accordingly versus like what you're describing, which is just like this kind of free for all. You have no idea who you're going to bump into. You don't know what the quality of the conversation is going to be. So yeah, I think that's, I think that's really interesting.
1: Or even letting people know who's going to be at the party ahead of time. And I actually know, I also wonder if this is generational because I think uh, among younger, I, I, I could be completely wrong about this, but I have noticed sort of among some younger people, if there's like a dinner party, they will sort of send the email and say like, this is who's going to be there Um, you know, this is what they do, or ask them about such and such. That was one of the things with the tech people. There was a lot of, you know, conversation starter with this person, ask them about their podcast or something. And you would just never see that, like, you know, in people in the arts, like that would just be the most sort of uncool, sort of weird ham-fisted thing. But it totally makes sense um, in that context
0: that's fascinating because what you're describing to me is normal. (laughs) So I think that's really... That's because you live in Northern California. Probably because I'm like from Northern California. And yeah, I mean, technically I am like an elder millennial. So I am like from this generation where things, I guess, are much more like clear and labeled. And I mean, well, you know, we've seen like the rise of, you know, themed based dinners. You know, they have like these things like, um, what's it called? Like death over dinner or death,
1: dinner death over part? dinner. Oh yeah.
0: Oh. You you should, that should be, they should be like a guess. There's like,
1: yeah, <laughs> there's just like, these, wait, why is it, what does it have to do with death?
0: Um, they're trying to like destigmatize the conversation around like death and grief. And so people, Oh, oh I know what you mean. Yeah, yes. You actually, yes.
1: They're called, yeah. um, Oh God, because actually I was doing several years ago, I was doing some research. Um, yeah, it's called, uh, right. Yeah. They like get, they get, yeah! Oh God! The dinner party or something? I, I totally um, forgot. Yes, that's, yes. But that—that's just that's sort of like a meetup of people to get together to talk about about death and dying. Um, yes, but even meetups in and of themselves, like Meetup that dot com, that's all very highly organized.
0: Yeah, yeah. very theme based, and yeah, they probably started in Northern California. I don't remember, but oh um, god. Yeah. So what you're describing to me sounds normal. And it's like, I wouldn't even describe that as like an autistic thing because it's like, it's so normal. So who's to say like, it's, it could be context. It could be normal for me because I'm also like wired a little bit that way. You know, again, it's like, who knows how much of it is culture, context, geography versus like genuinely some form of like mental or neurological difference. Um, I don't know.
1: Right. It is called death over dinner. So this is and it yeah this is a little bit different than the thing I was talking about but um well that sounds good I think I'm maybe I can go to one tonight death, death over dinner it's not too it's early enough in the morning I could probably find find my way to one um well Janara this has been incredibly interesting. And, um, I really appreciate your, your coming on not once, but twice to uh, get over our, our technical, our technical issues. Um, is there, is there anything you, you want to leave us on? Is there anything that you're particularly hopeful about or how, how, how's your life going these days? It sounds like you don't really even think about these things in terms of your own lived experience as much as you used to.
0: Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much, Megan, for having me. It's so great. It's so great to talk with you. And um, yeah, you know, I think, like I mentioned before, it, you know, in many ways, the this, you know, two-year pandemic period has quieted down things for people, which is 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 interesting. And I know we did see a lot of articles coming out around that, around like people – initially finding a little bit more rest and quiet, but I think that has been particularly true for, you know, like sensitive or neurodivergent people. Um, And so, yeah, I think, you know, speaking of integration, a lot of the things I wrote about in my book for me are just very integrated into my life now. You know, I've got a lot of great work and I've got my family and I have a really solid grasp on, you know, what works for me when I'm out in the world in terms of like my own sensory sensitivities and that kind of thing. Um so yeah, it's been a really really interesting journey to go on and so happy to share it with broader circles too. That's really important to me. I mean, I am often interviewed, you know, in like psychology and medicine and and mental health spaces, but I really do want to bring these conversations to, you know, larger circles, like whether it's politics or even like the, the, the culture wars and, um, and that kind of thing.
1: Um, so yeah. And what would, what would be your advice to somebody who is looking for a therapist who will recognize, um, a a sort of, you know, larger constellation of, of factors, somebody who suspects that there's more going on with her than just being anxious or depressed?
0: Well, I mean, see, that's the hard thing, right? So for me, what I did, because so many therapists really have no idea about any of this, they're just not up to date on the research. So for me as a journalist, I was able to, you know, interview a bunch of experts and then put it into the book. Um, so, oh, yeah, a lot of doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists don't know about this stuff. And so it does take extra time and research to look into a therapist who has a grasp on neurodiversity. It is growing. Um, And since so much of like mental health work is on Zoom now anyways, you could, you know, probably Google like neurodiversity and like therapist or um, there's there's quite a few therapists who now specialize in high sensitivity in general. Then there's also this term called like twice exceptional, which is you know, let's say you, you know, you have like the whole gifted thing, but then you also maybe have like ADHDs. you kind of like have two things There are definitely therapists who specialize in that. Um, but I would also just say, be patient because it can take time and it is important to, to do some of your own research so that when you are talking with a the therapist, you know, you're clear and you have a sense of like what you need to
1: share. All right. Well, Janara, thank you so much for sharing all that you have and um, best of luck with everything going forward. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. That was my conversation with Janara Nuremberg. She is the author of Divergent Mind, Thriving in a World That Wasn't Designed for You. And she's the founder of the Neurodiversity Project. And also, though we didn't really talk about this, she is the head of Divergent Literary, a literary agency devoted to narrative change in books about issues like identity, well-being, activism, and systemic bias. You can learn all about it at divergentlit.com. Janara also appears at public events and conferences with the Aspen Institute and the Commonwealth Club, and she continues to speak widely on the rhetoric of psychology and implications for society. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, there are several ways to do so. The first is to join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the where joining at any level gets you early ad-free access to the podcast, and joining at higher levels gets you other things as well, such as 10% off your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF Merchandise. Valentine's Day is right around the corner. What better gift for your critical thinking honey than a nuanced AF hat, mug, shirt, sticker, or if you're not feeling all that committed, magnet. You can also make a one-time donation to the show if Patreon is not your thing by going to the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donate button. Uh, I should also say, As a semi-side note, uh, and I probably should have been saying this earlier, that the paperback edition of my most recent book, The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars, will finally be coming out on February 22nd. It includes a new forward with some reflections about what's happened in the, yes, two years since the book first came out. Uh, There will be special offers for Patreon supporters and others, which I will announce and explain on the show's website as soon as I figure them out. So keep an eye on that space, as well as on my author website, megandown.com. That's it for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.